Welcome to the Hoban Minute, a podcast that will shift your perspective on the business, politics, and culture of the hemp and marijuana industries. I'm your host, Xavier Jaye. It's 420 somewhere, so let's dive in. Hello and welcome to the Hoban Minute. I'm your host, Xavier Jaye, and today I'm joined, as I am always, by Mr. Bob Hoban. How are you today, Bob? I'm doing great today. How about you? It's good to be here. Yeah, I'm doing well. The, uh, the weather's cooling down a bit here in Denver. Um, we're doing a lot of work with, um, hemp derived cannabinoids as always seems to be that we, uh, we discuss here on this show. It's the, the topic, let's say, um, of the times and of 2022. Um, but today we're actually joined by a high powered executive in the cannabis space. That is the licensed marijuana and THC side of things. John Mueller of Greenlight Dispensaries. How are you today, John? Oh, wonderful. And thanks for having me on the show. Of course. No, we're happy to have you. We, uh, we've done, our, at least I have, done a bit of research on um, yourself and Greenlight Dispensaries, and I'm quite excited to, to learn a little bit more about your perspective in the space, um, particularly given the, uh, the, let's say, less traditional um, footprint of Greenlight Dispensaries. You know, we're in Colorado. Um, we work with clients across the United States, but most of those clients do tend to be focused in markets like California, Washington, Oregon, you know, kind of these states that folks affiliate cannabis and cannabis consumption with maybe culturally um but you know Greenlight dispensaries has got locations across arkansas missouri south dakota and west virginia you know some of these jurisdictions that again we don't typically associate with the cannabis industry so uh very interested or very glad to have you here on the show today and uh excited to talk to you and and xavier that's a great place to start actually when 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 people think of regulated commercial cannabis and retail outlets. They do tend to think of the coasts, and of course not to exclude a place like Chicago, Illinois, but but John, your your group has a presence in multiple Midwestern states. So, so maybe for the benefit of us uh, in the first instance, but certainly by extension our listeners, what what is what is your experience with Midwestern cannabis? Uh, does it defy this notion that, that Xavier mentioned a moment ago and that I've heard repeated so often? That is, you know, the, the, these markets are not going to support commercial cannabis. Uh, I, I, I bet you that, that you, you, you can show us and prove to us the opposite of that. What, 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 do, you, what do you have to say about the Midwestern marketplace? <laughs> Yeah, one one we love being the flyover market here, and and you have all that big MSOs, specifically the big five, that have kind of uh, shunned their noses at uh, at the Midwest to begin with. But if you were the dominant player here in Missouri, and have a good presence down in Arkansas as well, and you look at that combination, there's nine million humans that uh, that are uh, that are a large a large chunk of those are, are consumers as well. And you look at 9 million people in that. And then also you look at, you know, what's on the border. So where's Kansas at in the, in the regulatory process? Where's, you know, where's Nebraska, where's Iowa, et cetera. And all of a sudden these become very interesting. And it, as you see in you know the Illinois market, how many people have been kind of driving east on, uh, on 70 going across to Illinois to pick up uh, their cannabis products. And that bridge is going to turn in the other direction here. If we go adult use here in November. So, uh, we, we like being in the flyover states that uh, all the all the big guys are not too focused on. So we're we as we dubbed ourselves up at Benzinga, we were we're the uh, the biggest MSO you never heard of. 
and uh, and we're pretty proud of that. Really got going uh, full steam in 2019 after uh, after exiting out in California and Nevada. So after a, a good exit out there with uh, with Cure Leaf, it allowed us to come back. We're Midwest boys. My brother and I are partners in this, and it allowed us to come back here to to the forgotten states here in the middle that uh, we are born and raised in, and have a little home field advantage where uh, where we know where to go and where not to go, and and uh, and how to connect with the uh, you know the Midwest people. And you look at a state like Missouri, and you know we were 16 percentage points for for Donald Trump, but you still have a strong 190,000 person patient base that's built up over the last two years, really. So it's it's a really interesting market. We're pretty proud of it, and 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 we've been kind of on the front end of uh, of the sword here leading the charge on, on the patients. And now uh, as we're looking at the adult use market coming up here, it's getting real interesting in these markets. John, what drew in you and your brother to the cannabis space? I see your experience. You know, you've talked about, uh, you've got some experience in, in capital funds. You, you presently do that as well. You, you've been involved in a, in a bunch of varied businesses from machines to tunneling, harvests and, and agricultural yeah. companies. What brings you to cannabis? Yeah, I think, you know, my brother and I have never signed the back of a payroll check, so we're completely unemployable. So uh, we, we, we basically look, we're serial entrepreneurs and, and looked at emerging markets. It really started off my brother's, uh, my brother's wife at the time. Her, uh, her, her father was in uh, one of the medical, old medical collectives in Southern Cal, and we kind of watched out there, rode along with him to, to visit some patients' houses and that, and and obviously anything in an emerging market is, is very interesting. So, uh, we, we looked at that and didn't want to, uh, go mess with, uh, you know, trying to put that genie back in the bottle out in California from a licensing standpoint, looked at Colorado where you're at and Oregon, there's other places. And then really dove deep into, uh, to Nevada with, uh, some strategic partners out there, uh, won some licenses and then did some real creative thing with, you know, open view kitchens and kind of, uh, the underground or farm first farmers market in the country. And, and we kind of helped pull back the veil of, of, uh, making cannabis less scary than it was, uh, maybe the day before, but it was, uh, really trials and tribulations out there and, and seeing, uh, seeing what that medical collective did out there. And then once we opened, uh, what was called acres at the time, now it's another cure leaf store, but, uh, what was called acres cannabis out there. And, and, uh, we did some really creative stuff and, and kind of built up a, a great consumer base and then watching people walk in the door. I'll give you one quick story. My, my, uh, uh, attorney came in and his, uh, his father-in-law had Parkinson's and just to watch literally, you know, we got him in there, worked with him, got him some products, et cetera. And like three days later that, that human came back in and it, it was really a life changer for him. That was, that was further when we were down, down the line, but it was one great example of, uh, you know, just seeing, uh, seeing, you know, changing a, a few people's lives. And, and then also, obviously, we're, we're big believers that this is a heck of a lot better than any alcohol or anything else anybody's putting in their system if, uh, if they're just a adult use consumer. Yeah, and that's a, an important, I think, line that, that drives a lot of the work that Bob and I are doing, you know, is, is reminding ourselves as frequently as possible that at the end of the day, you know, we might be involved more in corporate transactions and the capital market, but there's, there's a real need, um, from the medical side and then from the patient community, uh, for access to some of the compounds, you know, whether or not it's, it's cannabis wholly or, you know, identified and individualized cannabinoids. Um, all of these things are, are important. And I think something that motivates me to participate further in the industry is the fact that I'm able to help people that are helping people. 
Um, you know, I've never been a, a pharmacist or a cultivator or anything like that myself, but this is somewhat of a way that I can kind of contribute back to some of those folks that are um, needing, you know, and, and, and involve myself with folks like you that provide that direct access. So that's super important. Um, yeah, we, we, we appreciate it. There, there's a, there's a bunch of, obviously your, your wonderful podcast and a bunch of the other ones out there that all of a sudden this isn't a, a, the big scary beast. And I used to, uh, when we first started out in Nevada, I used to whisper under my voice as I'd be on my Southwest plane heading out there for the week to go do my work. And, and, you know, now you look around and if, if, uh, it's the most interesting topic that you can have and everybody's been touched by the plants in, in some way, shape or form. And, uh, and there's very few, uh, very few bad stories out there, which yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled with. So. Right. Right. And it's good to have, it's good to promote the good actors, um, which is why we're happy to have you on the show here. Um, so one thing you actually mentioned that I thought was very interesting was, um, using the retail space as a way to accommodate, let's say less cannabis focused consumers. So folks that don't have an affinity for cannabis, maybe haven't tried the plant before, you know, I always tend to say, Oh, it's the product types that are going to pull those folks into the cannabis industry. But, you know, you mentioned using uh, like a farmer's market, I think, model you mentioned, um, and kind of these different retail space um, strategies to bring in and make the the cannabis industry more welcoming. Is that something that you're doing still with Greenlight Dispensaries? Yeah, yeah, we started that off in, uh, so the rules and regs are a little bit different here in, in some of the Midwestern states, but we did an open view kitchen where you could see an edible being made or you see, you know, the extraction equipment and, and how you're basically making that vape pen, you know, behind there. And all of a sudden, you know, like it, it doesn't seem so scary anymore. That kitchen's cleaner than, you know, the taco place that went down the street to in Vegas. So, uh, all of a sudden it's, it's not as scary and you see somebody back there, you know, rolling a hundred joints at a time and just seeing that it's basically just plant matter going in there. And, and I think once you can pull that back, we also built out a museum in that one. I, I actually bought that uh, museum from Cureleaf and brought it back here uh, to Branson, Missouri, which is uh, a little mini Vegas if you've never heard of Branson. But uh, the, uh, so we, we, we brought some of that stuff back and, and you follow the whole history of the plants and also, you know, everything to do with the Controlled Substance Act and, and where this all began and hopefully, uh, hopefully ends at some point here. But, uh, I, I think what, once you show people and, and as you look in a green light stores, we have, uh, what I call joint rolling windows in every one where, where you can see people back there packing either, uh, you know, flour in a jar or, or rolling joints behind there that you can, you can purchase right in front of you. All of a sudden it's, it's not as, as scary as it looks like in, in a black exit bag. If, uh, if you see how your products are being made. Right. Yeah, no, I agree that with that completely. Um, you know, seeing the sausage made can often take the mystery out of it. And I think yeah. it's just one of those things where, um, I don't know, I always think about going to the mechanic, right? I'm not a car guy. Um, and I have no idea what they're yeah. doing with my car. <laughs> and I trust they're going to turn it back to me and it's going to work. So it's, uh, yeah. it's a similar experience for a lot of cannabis consumers. And so providing that education piece is a great way to bring in, um, you know, yeah. let's say less curious folks and folks that are curious, but maybe having a chance to try something that, that works for them. The other one, which which we kind of became known for and was kind of my invention, is we did the first uh, farmer's market, too, the marijuana farmer's market. And actually, I, I made it cool. So you walk through a, you know, a stone drug tunnel and come out the other end and shipping containers and trunks of Cadillacs and loud music and DJ booths and fun stuff like that. But the main goal was uh, you look at all the pop-ups that happen in, in every one of these dispensaries around the country 
and they're handing you out an, uh, an uninfused item and then you go talk to the bud tender and the bud tender tells you to do something else. Well, we wanted to basically connect that patient or that consumer directly with the brands as, as we believe over time, the brands will end up being the biggest factor in this equation as, uh, as people find something they like and they want to stay with it uh, much longer, like every other industry, you know, that we, that we see on the shelves in the grocery stores, et cetera. But, uh, so what it was is basically to have a vendor booth there where that cultivator comes in they put their sign up above there. They have their own register and they're able to actually communicate directly with the patient or consumer about here's what I grow and I grow in cocoa or I use this fertilizer or, or I make my vape pen like this, or this is, you know, you know, whatever vegan or whatever, whatever their sales pitch is, it, it allows them to connect directly. You don't have that, you know, basically bud tender in between there that could potentially screw up the, uh, screw up that relationship. And then you get immediate feedback from that patient. Well, it didn't work this time. We'll try this. And, and having that direct connection between those two is, is really why we made the farmer's market. We've got uh, one open now here in, uh, in Kansas city. And then I've got, uh, I got three more that are about to open in the next two months here as we spread them across our states. And it, it really is a different buying experience and it kind of flips the model a little bit. But the main one is we think that brands over time will, will end up controlling a little bit, you know, more of the, the piece of the puzzle, whether it's the brand on the front of the building or it's that product that you're purchasing and walking out with. So well, we, we see that flip coming. John, that's a great distinction. What, what do you see as the, what, what do you, what do you, what's your bet? Where do you push put your money on, on the, the brand on the front of the building or the brand on the products? And it doesn't matter what kind of product it is because, you know, I, I, I've always taken the position that people don't buy brands in the cannabis industry. They buy experiences. And the only experience that they buy is, is a repeatable experience, something that they like that they want to try again. And the minute that that product doesn't meet the standards from the last time, which you and I both know can be varied by mood, weight, uh, you know, outlook on life, a hundred other things. Um, what's your bet? Is it, is because I'm, I'm not seeing brands outside of edible products really making headway, um, in, in any notable way. Uh, and there's exceptions to that rule, but, but, but where, where would you put your money? Well, we, I mean, we got a lot of retail outlets. So I got 23 dispensaries open now with a big green light on the outside of that. So I better not talk against myself, but, uh, you know, I, obviously I, I, you know, for us, it's the total buying experience. It's how you're treated, you know, the music's playing in the parking lot all the way, you know, the microseconds to get them through the front door, et cetera. And then basically that, that brand commitment. And uh, I, I think our consumers are more finicky than probably anybody else. You know, they, they will go buy a bottle of Tito's, you know, for the rest of their life and, and not go back to Grey Goose or whatever their deal sure, was. Sure. But I think the, I think the cannabis consumer is, is a little bit different where they want to try everything and, and they get bored very quickly. And I, I just don't think the market's developed as much. And so I think you constantly, as a brand too, you have to constantly be reinventing yourself because you all of a sudden become the stale, you know, stale thing sitting on the shelf. Like, Oh, I have that. Let me go try this. And, you know, we just haven't been dialed into, you know, basically a lot of brand loyalty other than like you mentioned, like you got some baits out there and you got some edibles that, that people just love, but th- those groups too are reinventing themselves with live resin and all these other things that, sure. uh, that everybody's trying to reinvent themselves with. But, uh, the loyalty for the brand is definitely not there yet. Uh, but I, I think, you know, o- over time that will get better. 
And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure when, when our borders will open up, uh, across the country. I don't, I don't foresee that in, in, uh, anytime soon, but, uh, you know, may, maybe that's the game changer or something, but, uh, uh, these finicky uh, consumers are, are a little bit different in our industry than pretty much anything else. No, and, and, and I'd love to touch base briefly on the on the, the recent uh, discussions from the White House in terms of Biden's uh, recent actions, but also um, just how you approach the retail experience uh, and the way you described it with farmers markets and, and, you know, making it almost interactive, although it's not truly interactive, where you, you see products being made. Um, those are innovative things that we don't see as the norm. I mean, the norm tends to be the iPhone looking store, uh, in different markets or the, the store that's a little bit more culturally relevant. Um, it was said in a public hearing I was involved in today in another context, still involving cannabis, that a 55 year, 55 plus community person said 55 year old pluses do not want to walk into a dispensary. They just won't do it. They don't want to do it. What, what do you, what's your opinion on that, that as a perspective and what kind of things do you do to try to make it more comfortable for, you know, folks that are 55 plus years old? Yeah, no, we, we, obviously we try and have, you know, a universal vibe where, you know, closer to a, a Starbucks feel than it is, you know, uh, buying an iPhone, you know, and it, obviously that didn't work out well for the MedMen guys of doing the iPhone deal, but the, uh, you know, you, you look at, I, I think it's, it's all about that, the greeting, that first thing and, and basically setting yourself up. If that person needs to get in and out of there that we work on nanoseconds and nobody should ever hit that, that couch in the lobby and, and unless uh, they feel like sitting down. And I think, you know, working that through there and, you know, having a good energy, uh, obviously motivated employees, which, uh, we are very fortunate in our industry that, that people still want to come work for a cannabis company when they won't go, you know, work at KFC or, or some of these other, uh, you know, j- jobs on a daily basis. But, uh, I, I think it's all about, you know, in, in our stores, I have everybody from the guy walking in his pajamas to, you know, somebody in the suit coat and everything in between. We, we skew, you know, uh, about 47 is, uh, is the, the number here. Uh, that we skew at at our store. So that 55 that you're talking about, we've, we've got a whole host of people like that. And, uh, and they come in and we open the doors for the ones with the walker. And, uh, we got the other, you know, you know, just a few that are in their twenties still. So it's a, it's an interesting market when you're, especially when you're in a medical market, like, uh, like these are today. So we get to hopefully November, but, uh, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're skewing a little bit higher. And I think most patient markets are, are pretty much that way where it's, uh, you know, it, it costs money to get your patient card and, uh, and, you know, products cost a little bit more, uh, in new markets than they will over time too. So I think that's, that's part of the reason as well. And I think just to, to really tie a bow on the, the, the kind of conversation about your retail experiences, you know, as Bob said, consumers in this industry don't buy brands, right? They're buying experiences. And I think that applies beyond just the product experience, but it applies to the retail experience. Yeah. I think, I think the other one for us is uh, specifically in the state of Missouri where they allow that drive through pickup similar to a CVS or Walgreens. Uh, you know, you, you see it at some of our stores, that's 50% of the traffic. So if that 55 year old doesn't want to get out of there, the, the mom has her, her kid in the back seat and, and they need the Medicaid. You know, we, we have that experience as well. Or if you want to come in and talk to my bud tender for an hour, you're, you're more than welcome to, or, or we can get you, 
get you out of there under five minutes if uh, if uh, that's that's when you, you want to move along. So that's uh, we, we try and offer that to everybody. Yeah, having that, that kind of retail flexibility is certainly key, especially in a newer market like that. Um, so I want to pivot a bit to, to, you know, current political news. Um, you had made the comment early on that, you know, you're the flower states, states are mostly that are voting or at least in the past have voted for, uh, red candidates, Trump most recently. Um, but last week we did see news coming down to the white house, um, from the executive, um, himself, Mr. Joe Biden, <laughs> president Joe Biden, um, you know, issuing pardons to to federal uh, prisoners that had been um, charged with nonviolent cannabis possession crimes. Um, of course, you know, there's various discourse around the motivations behind such an announcement. Um, but I'm curious to hear kind of your thoughts on it, John. You know, do you see this as being impactful? Is this indication that there is some sort of federal reform coming in the next two years or maybe in the next election um because i do think that you know this does signify and has signified kind of the continued trend that we've seen lately of cannabis legalization no longer being a partisan issue it's nonpartisan. both parties you know want to promote and are looking to promote um various approaches let's say to uh commercializing cannabis here in the united states so what do you have to think about that? Yeah, obviously, big news for the industry. Obviously, I think everybody that's ever been on your podcast wishes this would have happened a couple of years ago. Uh, but uh, so, so excited to see something out of there. Obviously, lo- love the pardons, uh, you know, but you're only talking about 6,500 uh, humans that that impacts across, you know, our, our vast, our vast country. So uh, obviously his, his drive to get each of the governors to do this is, is also good to hear. Uh, obviously, they've got to file suit on that. But you look at like a state of Missouri, like we, we have adult use on the ballot in November, and we specifically work with the NAACP uh, and actually normal. Is, it is also supporting, which generally, and basically everybody in the industry, which generally getting normal in, in the operating industry to, to all agree to a program is pretty tough to do. And uh, the, one of the key things that we had in there is expungement. So this Missouri will be the first state that actually does automatic expungement. And the reason I bring up Missouri is we've got 22,000 people that have, you know, arrests uh, every single year in the state of Missouri for minor possession of, and it basically represents 50% of all the, uh, the drug offenses uh, across uh, Missouri for, for these minor deals. And we were able to basically put in automatic expungement. So you look at the federal level and the 6,500 people and instantly we're going to have about 15,000 of those just in the state of Missouri that will be automatically expunged. So really this is a state issue and we need it all collectively. It's an industry keep working on it from a, from a state by state standpoint of getting this off air so people can go to work and people can be in the military and all these other things that uh, a bunch of these crazy laws are prohibiting. So I think, uh, uh, love hearing, love hearing the expungement thing. Obviously it, uh, it moved the, the stock needle as well. And, uh, asking to deschedule can be a, a good, uh, good, but also a scary thing for our industry as well. When, uh, you know, potentially we could go to a schedule two, which, uh, you know, we might be looking at, clinical trials if the FDA decided to do something uh, along those lines, which, uh, which then for operators in each one of these states, what does that look like? And, and who survives, you know, that type of process. But descheduling also takes multiple years. And uh, we, don't, we don't expect anything too quick on that. 
and and we sure hope that uh, this this announcement uh, specifically doesn't derail uh, a lot of optimism around safe banking and and cleaning up that stuff. So we're uh, we're we're hoping uh, we're hoping to just get treated like uh, treated like alcohol here in a minute. Well, let me try to unpack some of these things around around the Biden announcement. So uh, the pardons, you know, uh, we won't have to get into this, but did you see that the governor of Texas, um, he says, yeah, 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 thanks, Joe Biden, but we're not going to be doing that. Well, of course. <laughs> I don't want to support. <laughs> that, that, Shocker. That, that, Shocker. That's part of it. But, uh, it's got no force. <laughs> well, to date. But, but, uh, but, but to your point, John, uh, you're involved also in in, in capital funds, and, and of course, as a, as a CEO of a uh, a growing um, uh, multi-state retail brand, uh, you're always on the hunt for capital to scale, to scale and and the like. Or at least I would presume that's the case. That that's certainly the case with with just about everybody we've worked with uh, over the course of the last thirteen to fifteen years. Um, there was a a, a bit of a, a boom uh, on the uh, on the stock values uh, based on Biden's announcement. Um, is that because the markets just need something to sink their teeth into uh, because the discussion about capital in the cannabis industry for the last nine to 12 months is really just a, a, about debt and lending versus, uh, you know, straight out equity investing, which has been the norm, frankly, for the cannabis industry for, for a number of years now. Uh, and it shifted dramatically to the, to the debt side. Um, does the industry just, is it insatiable for any federal public comment about <laughs> cannabis and the future of it? And it reacts so sensitively to that. How do you, how do you evaluate all that? Yeah, I think you, you look back at, you know, what March of 20 at, at basically what our highs were and effectively as an industry, we're about 65% off that number of, you know, just two years ago here. So I, I think, you know, I, obviously anybody's looking for some good news. And as you look at every debt, you know, debt deal out there, equity deal out there, you know, all the big guys do not want to give up their equity at this point because their stocks are so depressed, like to a crazy level when you have a truly, who is a, you know, great operator in the market has the very dominant position, obviously in Florida. And, uh, obviously they're, you know, integrating with harvest, et cetera, but they're trading at an eight times earnings number. You know, for a publicly traded stock in an emerging market with, you know, talking about, you know, it's going to be a $50 billion industry and they're, you know, one of five top operators to be trading at those kind of multiples just makes absolutely no sense. It's it's lunacy. Uh, And it's just, you know, they, you know, people are are tired of not seeing anything move. uh, and, And all these big companies are integrating a lot of the acquisitions they did before. And, uh, but they're all switching over and they're all prepping to get ready to go up on the big board. And that all happens, you know, effectively with, uh, with a safe banking or something along those lines. So now you're seeing these earnings reports and they're reporting, you know, gap accounting and stuff like that instead of adjusted EBITDAs and all that other crazy stuff. So I think the, the equities have just been hammered so bad. Uh, and, and these companies are, are profitable. Until you know you start writing that tax check still on 280E, so I, I think uh, I think the debt deals obviously it's, it's expensive money relative to any other industry, but it's a heck of a lot cheaper than giving up a whole bunch of uh, equity at this point. Well, the, the last thing I'll ask you is just because you mentioned it. I mean, there, there seems to be a perception in the industry that that Trulieve is is doing things correctly. Uh, Kim and her team have, have definitely uh, put put themselves. 
uh, more than on the map as, as one of the largest players in the world. Um, and, 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 and they've created a valuation scenario that uh, does, you know, sort of uh, exponentially uh, add on to their, their earnings. Um, what's the lesson in there and or what's, what's the, the core principle that you adhere to that might be that lesson that allows these larger companies to, 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 to go out and, and do the right thing? Because, you know, you, you alluded to MedMen earlier, and that's not a great thing for us to talk about in the sense that you know, it, was, it was the rise and the fall and, you know, there was some nefarious characters and, and bad intents in there. Yeah. But, but, but what, is, what is the secret sauce? What makes True Leaf successful and what is the principle that you follow that, that you hope will, will continue to make your uh, organization successful as well? Yeah, no, and, and, and the main reason I brought up Truly is uh, obviously their price to earnings is so ridiculously low, but you still have a Verano that's trading at, you know, 10 times earnings. So uh, George over there and, and Sammy are doing doing a great job as well, and GTI has always been profitable, and I, I think they're figuring out how they're going to expand that footprint. And, you know, Cresco, I mean, you, you really have five big players. That's where all the stock, all the stock money goes. Everything else is. Kind of, kind of a rounding error at this point from, you know, the big five that uh, that have kind of uh, emerged and and had their capital stacks uh, cleaned up a little bit. So I think, I think, uh, you know, as, as as we look at our business, I think, you know, if we if we ended up having a merger partner or something else, or or, or we did a roll up deal, I think now we got to focus on, you know, what's your earnings, and we've been fortunate to be profitable since uh, since day one because. You know, we are kind of Canvas 2.0, where we went through the trials and tribulations and made a gazillion mistakes before in our in our previous business before we sold the Curalee, and then uh, you know, like we just make less mistakes now in round two. And so I think the the focus for any operator out there now, and whether it's you know the the Curalee of the world and Crescos and those guys or us, it's you know focus on earnings and uh, providing an exceptional consumer experience. Uh, whether you're in medical market or, or you're going adult use, like like our big uh, our big three states are all going adult use this year, so it drastically impacts our business and obviously drastically impacts the the earnings potential of our business. And that would be a, a great reason to have you on the Hoban Minute again in the future, John. You know, once those states do flip to rec and adult use, would be interested to hear kind of how that transition goes for you guys and, and what sort of strategies and, and lessons you've learned along the way. Because I think you've shared a lot of great insights today about, you know, what it takes to manage a cannabis retail operation across many uh, states. You know, you've shared history and background and what brought you to the cannabis space in the first place. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. Um, as we wind this down here, you know, always want to give our guests an opportunity to plug themselves, you know, give any shout outs, maybe describe ways that folks can find you if they are looking to reach out and learn more about yourself and Greenlight. Yeah, I, I think what, one, I think we're the only Greenlight out there. So greenlightdispensaries.com. But, uh, and, uh, and we've been, you know, kind of going on the media circuit now as, as we're kind of get, get it, getting our footprint behind us. So we got 23 stores open now. I got another 16 that are, uh, under construction and development. So our, our goal is to be at 40 by the end of the year here and, uh, or the first quarter of next year, I should say the, uh, and you know, we got 150,000 square feet of cultivation and, you know, one, we're always looking for good humans to, to bring on board. We're up to 400 people that work for our, our company now. And, uh, we continue to expand and look at new markets and you look at the Alabamas of the world and North Carolinas of the world that are that are bringing new programs on. We, we, we want to be active in all these 
these new markets as we kind of know how to stand things up and get them up and operating uh, efficiently and and uh, and basically take care of our consumers. At the end of the day, the people walking through the, the front doors is all that matters to, to any business, whether we're in cannabis or are selling widgets, but uh, we, we want to always be perfect at that. Right on. Well, looking forward to seeing that growth realized over the next year and then beyond. And uh, thanks again for coming on the Hope Minute, John. Looking forward to having you on again. Well, th- thank you both and appreciate what you guys do for the industry. Thanks for joining us for another enlightening conversation. If you liked what you heard, hit that subscribe button to get all future episodes fresh out of the studio. Suggestions for topics or guests for the show? please send them to hello at bobhoban.com. And as always, thanks to Benzinga for powering the Hoban Minute.